Hi, everyone. Welcome to Sobriety Core Podcast, a collection of stories from people who happen to be sober. I'm your host, Kim Palumbo. Just a note, during the recording of this episode, Cheyenne and I were in different parts of Washington, D.C., experiencing an epic thunderstorm. This made the audio slightly less than ideal in the first part of this episode. That being said, you are not going to want to miss this conversation. Hi, everyone. On this episode of Sobriety Core, I am joined by Cheyenne. Welcome, Cheyenne. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Kim. Cheyenne, who are you? Well, on the outside, I would say that I'm first, I'm a woman. I'm also African-American. I am married. I have four children, used to be a lawyer, ended up working in a government agency because being a lawyer wasn't for me in a nutshell. I think on the inside, I'm someone who is deeply unhappy about my current, just generally the way that my life has progressed and the things that I've accomplished. On the outside, I think for a lot of people, it's you know impressive, an impressive amount of success. Um, just based on the values that we hold in this country, but I never wanted to do any of it, and I never have really explored who I am and what I want. Always doubted my capabilities, always doubted myself. I'm deeply insecure and also introverted, and I think in some ways I have a lot of unresolved issues as a young adult that I've never addressed. I just kind of pushed under the the covers. Um, and all of that, I think, has led me to the place that I am in today. I think I'm slowly emerging from all of that and trying to piece it all together. I feel like I'm in a stagnant place right now. I feel like I'm teetering on possibly maybe thinking that I'm going to be here forever, like this is who I am. And that's disturbing to me. I think it's so important, though, that you named those things. It would be easy to just keep kind of shoving them under the proverbial rug but what if it is what if this is me what if there's nothing else Mm. i have to learn to accept it or just continue down the path of destruction that i was in as an alcoholic what brought you to sobriety i grew up in southern california i had a really great childhood my parents were both deeply religious i was the baby i was constantly Bond upon, spoiled. I also was like the star of the family. I would play piano. I would, you know, give concerts for family and friends. I would play at church. Always got good grades. At some point, I think I just became really aware of myself. And I want to say that that started when I was in maybe like around junior high. I did go to church in Los Angeles. We lived in Claremont which is in the Inland Empire. So it's about 45 minutes away from Los Angeles. The church that we went to was a black church. They went to church so far away because they wanted to be around their friends. It was kind of like a homecoming for them, a very social event for them. For me, I never fit in there. You know, we only went once a week, but we spent an extraordinary amount of time there. The kids there, they were all from you know, the area, everybody was, 
I would say, you know, upper middle class, you know, everybody there was pretty successful and came from a two family home, but there was a difference between kind of the culture that I was growing up in, in the Inland Empire, and then what they grew up in, in in Los Angeles. They grew up around a lot of people like them. Everybody had shared in terms of like music and clothes and, you know, the way that people talk, et cetera. It was just different. And at that time, I didn't know how to be a chameleon and change myself. I was just who I was to, to really hate it because it wasn't like them. I do remember at some point them making fun of the way that I talked, but in a joking way. And I remember kind of accepting it and going along with it. I remember times when I overheard one of my peers' mother telling her, telling her daughter that she was going to come home with me after church and they were gonna have like a play date with me and that she, the daughter was not to object or protest that they were going. And I remember feeling they either, she either knows they don't want to go or she's sending them with me because she feels bad for me. She may have not thought any of those things, but I just remember that moment and how I felt kind of like set the stage for me and the way that I felt about other people and how they related to me for, I would say, many years. I held on to that as part of the way that I saw myself and the way that other people related to me. Like they really don't want to be around me. Um, I begged my mom and dad to transition to out where we live. They didn't really get what I was going through. I think they just thought I was going through an awkward stage and to them I was fine. I had friends. I had a best friend that lived next door to me. I had friends at school, but it was really just a couple of people that I became really close to. It was like all of a sudden I just turned into myself and became just this little insecure ball of, of nerves. I do remember distinctly knowing that I was African-American, knowing I was Black. Race always comes up, you know, as, as a Black person. Like, other people are always pointing out the differences. And for me, it was both from Black people and from white people. And Black people would say, you know, you're not really Black. White people would just be quick to point out the differences in various situations. And so when I went to, I think when about the time that I was going into high school, I don't know how this happened, but I kind of just, everything just changed, just kind of snapped for me. And I started just really wanting to be around a different element. Um, I guess what I thought represented being black at the time. And I know my parents were trying to keep me away in, in some ways, but I... Keep you away from what you wanted to explore? I was trying to look, I was trying to experience urban living. I, I guess see. that's the only way I can describe it. So in California at the time, this was in like the late 90s, gangster rap was really popular. Mm -hmm. This is when again WA came out like early 90s. And then in the late 90s when I was getting ready to go to high school, I think the activity around gang members and then just kind of music meshed together so one culture and um i just i just i really got into it mm -hmm. i 
dated um, gang members. I um, would skip class and go to other high schools. I went to a private high school. There were little to no black people there. I was just trying to immerse myself in something that, you know, I thought I wanted to, I thought I had to be, or I thought I wanted to be. Got myself in some dangerous situations, but I think I, I eventually calmed down. I don't want to say well, it was a defining moment for me, but I met a group of girls in high school who were basically the same as me. They'd grown up in going to the school where they were one of the only, only black people there. They grew up in a white neighborhood out in the Inland Empire. We connected because we, for me, it was that I was accepted for who I was. I didn't have to change who I was. Um, we were into the same things. And I felt like when I was with them, that was one of the only times that I felt like I really didn't care what other people thought about me. It's kind of like we were insulated in this, in this shell. And I really haven't met a group of girls that, that for me, you know, have generated that type, that type of kinship. But then so I that met, was like your first like experience of acceptance as you are. I think so. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Started developing a really bad relationship with my mother and father around that time. I felt like they were oppressing me. Of course, I was doing, you know, I had been doing some crazy things right before I met those girls. And then also continued on. But I did meet someone um, around the age of 15 or 16. who was a young man. And we kind of fell in love, you know, young puppy love. He ended up getting shot and killed, I think, probably three or four months into our, um, our relationship. It seems like it was much longer, but I think it was... Probably wow. not that far. After that, I kind of shut down emotionally. I don't remember that time. I don't remember how I felt at that time. Mm. I remember being very promiscuous, meeting people that were just very different from me and older than me, just trying to connect with a lot of different people. I had my first drink with my friends probably in my senior year and it was just the classic moment. And then I didn't drink again until college. I remember getting drunk during Halloween for homecoming and being so inebriated that half of the night I kind of blacked out. Then I think I had a pretty typical college experience in terms of alcohol. I wasn't, I didn't go to any crazy frat parties. I didn't engage in any drinking competitions. I just went to class or didn't go to class. I think I skipped a lot of class because I was um, quite depressed while I was in college and spent a lot of time with a boyfriend that I met freshman year. And we were together the entire time in college. And I kind of let him direct a lot of my activities and a lot of my life. I'm not sure why, that, but he was, he was just a really big part of my life then and everything revolved around him. So the drinking would come, I guess, whenever he drank. There was a lot of marijuana smoking. But I, don't, I just don't remember alcohol really serving me and having any distinct place in my life at that point in time. I started waiting tables at some point during my college years. At some point, I, I, I started drinking on the job with everyone else who waited tables. We would all kind of get drunk on the job and kind of use that as a as fuel to get through the, the day and at some point i remember buying like a bottle of johnny walker black and drinking that 
every day before I went to work. I don't remember what feelings I had at the time or what compelled me to do it, but I remember doing it on a daily basis and feeling as if I was out of control, like I couldn't stop. I went to see someone, they suggested I was an alcoholic. I said, that's ridiculous. And I just, at some point, stopped drinking the Johnny Walker and slowed down my alcohol consumption. You were in college at this time? I was Or this was after college? I was right, it was right around the time I graduated. Okay. And I was out here in DC, away from my family. Mm -hmm. Then I, um, I followed my boyfriend to New York and lived with him for some time. I think of those as like my six pack days because at some point my moods declined so much and I was very lonely. New York can be a place that's like super, super lonely if you don't know people there. Mm. And because my life revolved around my boyfriend, I really didn't meet a lot of, a lot of people. And I just remember I got a job at um, a law firm at that time. And I remember coming home every day and buying a six pack and drinking a six pack every single day. That continued until I went to law school. And I think that is, that's where I started crossing the line. In law school, you know, I'll say that my experience in law school is very much like my experience in college. I did, I never found that group of friends that I connected with. I was always on the outside. I always felt different. And I don't know whether that was self-imposed or whether, whether that's my perception or whether that was reality. I really don't know. I mean, because mm-hmm. I, I've never truly looked into why I felt this way and whether there's anything that I could change about myself to connect more with other people or to just stop thinking that, that I'm different. You know, I remained kind of just the person that had that one friend that was very close to me and everybody else, you know, kind of knew me, but not really that well. I didn't go to any parties. I didn't, I didn't socialize, just kept very much to myself. But the friend that I had, she was a drinker as well. We would go out together after class. We would get completely wasted. We would drink in class. I had beers in class on several occasions. It was, I mean, I just, I was drunk the entire time I was in law school. I'm surprised that I actually was able to pass. Met my husband my last year of law school. Got pregnant shortly after that. Started working at a law firm. Started drinking. I think... Almost immediately, we went out to happy hours. I would keep up with everybody that was there. I would drink everybody under the table. I think at that point, I started getting drinking buddies. There was always one person out of the group that I connected with, primarily because they could drink as much as I could. I, at some point, started to drink at my desk. I remember waking up having the shakes and going out and buying a bottle of vodka drinking it in the car on the way to work or drinking it as I was getting dressed. And I got scared and I, I stopped. I don't remember how, I don't think it was that hard, but I just remember I I stopped. I could stop. At some point I started up again. I think the stress of working at a firm and then again, kind of feeling like I wasn't really as successful as I wanted to be feeling like there was something that I wasn't getting 
in terms of clicking in my mind that there was some sort of connection that I needed to make that I wasn't making there. But I was always successful drinking and I was always the life of the party when I was drinking. And so I think I kind of used that to gloss over what I thought were, you know, massive imperfections or just being insecure. It just made me a different person. Once I left the firm, I think I stopped. So I have four children. I stopped drinking for each of my pregnancies. It wasn't hard to stop, but the pregnancy itself was miserable. And I remember thinking the entire time, I would have loved being pregnant had it not been for the lack of alcohol. I felt like I just, I wanted to hide. And I think it was because I saw alcohol as, I saw it as defining almost like who I was. As soon as I had my kid, probably within like the first month, I was drinking while I was breastfeeding, which I know a lot of women do. And that was how I justified it. And I wasn't like downing a bottle of wine. Like I would have a glass of wine and I would look forward to that glass of wine. I mean, like it was, it was I do. Like, a, like a glass of water. Oh, but I know it well. And then the breastfeeding would end and I would just go back to being a heavy, heavy drinker, but always kind of stopping myself at the point where I was shaking and drinking in the morning. I didn't get to that point again. After my last child, the drinking just started increasing within the last couple of years. I was having a lot of fun outside of my home. I was going out every night with my colleagues. I was not coming home. If I was at home, I would make dinner and be completely wasted by the time I finished cooking dinner and just pass out like around maybe seven or eight o'clock. Waking up the next day with a hangover, knowing that I could drink some more and get rid of it immediately. And I started this cycle of drinking heavily at night, having a hangover, drinking in the morning, maybe doing that for three or four days, and then starting all over again. Like maybe I had one day where I was just done because I had had too much. At some point, I started drinking in the car. I started buying bottles of wine on my way to work. I started drinking at lunchtime. I started drinking at my desk again. This is my current job, hopefully. I'm characterizing this right. We would have a meeting in the evening. If I drank a bottle of wine while I was getting dressed and then another bottle on the way to work, that would last me until around 5.30 or 6 o'clock when I had this meeting. I remember towards the end, my hands would, would be shaking in the meeting. I didn't, there was no shame. I, did, I didn't care. I didn't care. I just thought this was, this is how I'm living my life right now. I'm getting things done. I'm socializing with select people. I deserve it. I'm working really hard. My husband doesn't care because at the time I didn't think he cared. And I'm doing an okay job of being a mom. And so I just, I just justified it and just continued on. Then at some point, I don't remember what triggered me to do this, but I think at some point I, I wanted to rein it in. I don't know. There's nothing that happened in particular. There's nothing that nobody caught me drinking. My husband didn't really say that I was drinking too much. I just said, I'm tired of getting up every day and having a drink. I want to stop. So I took two weeks off of work. I was really stressed out at the time as well. And I just wanted to take a break. I think I made up some excuse for taking off. I said, well, I'm going to stop. I'm going to take these two weeks and I'm going to stop drinking. Slowly, I'm going to cut back. Instead of stopping, I like 
ramped up. I was drinking huge bottles of tequila and beer and wine on top of that. I mean, it was ridiculous from sunup to sundown. I just realized I can't stop. I, that, I cannot stop. All these other times I was able to stop and I couldn't. Hmm. I need some help. So I called Colmac, which is an IOP in DC. And I entered the, their program and started on my sobriety journey. So that's what led me here. I will say that I've, in addition to being kind of a friend that was always there, that enabled me to have fun and joke and kind of be outgoing, you know, alcohol also helped calm my nerves in many situations. It helped me be a different person because I don't think that I've ever wanted to do a lot of the things that, I, that I've actually engaged in, in terms of like my career and my life path. I think I just did it because I thought that it was what I was supposed to do. I think alcohol helped me accept it and become the person that I thought I needed to be. Looking back, if I had been sober, I don't know that I would have taken that same path. I may have just had the, you know, the druthers to say, you know what, I don't like this and I'm doing something else. But I kind of let alcohol glide me along and just continue, continue on. So yeah, so that's how I got here. That's how I became sober. Hmm. I think in sobriety, I certainly feel aspects of cognitive dissonance in my own life. They bubble up with the <laughs> vengeance, you know, in terms of, mm -hmm. did I make this choice knowing that it was true to who I am? Or was I so used to saying yes that I just said yes again? Exactly. That's been a very challenging part of sobriety for me. The, is, the, is it the clarity that you have, is that what makes it so, so challenging that you can actually see that you have a choice? In an earlier episode, a woman named Emily said the clarity of sobriety kept bringing her back to a drink when she was continuously relapsing while she was trying to get sober. And I think about that line all the time. It, I haven't been led back to a drink, but it has made the thought of drinking and the feelings that come up from the clarity of sobriety, which is really hard. It's not a one day at a time thing for me. Sometimes it's an hour or a minute at a time because the clarity can be just blinding. You know, you have four children, like you have a job, you uh, have a partner and there's like shit to get done, you know? And so it's uh, balancing those things is very challenging. And I think as women in particular, we face unique aspects of the clarity of our choices and whatever cognitive dissonance we may actually have about those choices in sobriety in ways that I feel like are somewhat unique. Yeah, no, I totally agree. How do you stay sober? Well, I, I didn't stay sober. Mm -hmm. I started drinking again. I think I always, going into treatment, I always thought I'm just learning the skills that I need to moderate myself. I'll start drinking at some point. 
think treatment teaches you to think a, a different way. And I almost fell into aligned with that thinking, but I didn't really think of myself as an alcoholic. I did, I never got to the root of my issues, at least at that point in time. And so I started drinking like the week after I graduated from the program. Basically the same pattern occurred where I guess over a period of three months, I checked back in to outpatient treatment and I was sent to an inpatient facility and I spent about six weeks there, met a lot of other addicts, was discharged to a sober house, ended up going to another IOP, actually where I met you. That's right. My husband had his own issues that he dealt with while I was away. He very capably took care of the family. There was a lot of, there was a lot of baggage in our marriage that we had to unpack when I, when I returned. Yeah. One of the things that we shared, I think that took a long time to, to get back to is the gift of like conversation and intimacy was fueled by alcohol constantly throughout our marriage. Mm-hmm. He's not an alcoholic, but he would drink with me. For both of us, initially, it was very awkward to be in the same space and to have an intimate conversation because I wasn't the same person. At the same time, I think towards the latter part of my drinking, I had become a raging bitch and I had abandoned my family. I was going out all the time. I was being a really shitty mom and a shitty wife. He liked the sober me, but it was almost like someone who he didn't know. It took a long time for us to reconnect. But one of the things that led me to drink right after I left the sober house was wanting to reconnect with my husband. There was a a restaurant, it was like a wine bar that was right around the corner. I walked by it every single day when I came back from, from my meetings. And one day I just stopped in and I drank. And I think the next day I stopped and I drank. And then I invited my husband and he drank with me. Knowing that I have a problem, he also didn't want to disappoint me. And he knew too that it would fast forward over the intimacy, kind of gloss over the intimacy issues that we were having. That was about maybe six months ago. You know, we are today. I'm in another program. I have not been sober for that long, but I think that what makes this time different is that I have accepted that I am an alcoholic. I don't do the one day at a time thing. It's easier for me to think of it as kind of a permanent status in life. I know that if I drink, I can have a sip of alcohol. And the next day, I've been drinking for 48 hours. Mm. That's not normal, right? Mm. I, you know, I just, I can't drink. My sobriety date was April 7 when we went into this whole COVID situation. Of course, it just, the drinking just started escalating absolutely out of control. And I experienced horrible with had horrible depressed depression and mood swings. It was really, it was a horrible decision. But it brings me where I am today. Today, I'm a person that has completely accepted that I cannot drink. I think what keeps me sober 
I would say that my family, my husband, the relationship that I have developed with him over the past three months that we've been in the house together, 24 hours a day, knowing that we can have a, a very strong relationship that's not plagued by drunk sex and arguments, you know, me going, flying off the handle, knowing that I can connect with him now without alcohol. I mean, it was a slow process, but moving through that and accomplishing that and just having a normal, calm life with him, that I think keeps me sober now. And also my children wanting to be here for them, knowing that if I continue to drink, I was likely to die from alcoholism. I mean, there's no way that I could have continued drinking as much as I did. Mm. Just wanting to be here and be a mom. I don't think that I am at the point, Kim, where I love myself enough to say that I stopped for me. I think that what drove me to stop drinking was thinking that it, it would potentially affect me being here for the long run for my children and for my husband. I wish I could say that I would stop it otherwise, but I just, I don't know if I would have. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I, if I was there. I guess on a day-to-day -day basis, I drink a lot of sparkling water and <laughs> kombucha and Diet Coke. That helps. <laughs> it does help. Yeah. Thank, thank God for the sparkling water. The intimacy piece is really, whew, that's one of the clarities of sobriety that's probably been especially challenging in my experience. And being home, this pandemic life that we're living, I give you a lot of credit that, that it's helped create bridges for you together. You could just as easily not do that. Just figuring out how to do relationships with people and create intimacy and, and have deep conversation. That's something that in my own experience was entirely fueled by alcohol. Right. If you could sit down with Cheyenne, your drinking self, what would you say to her? I would tell Cheyenne that she didn't need alcohol to accomplish the things that she accomplished and that it, it's not too late for her to just kind of stop, take the goggles off, just figure out who she is. Mm. Cheyenne wasted a lot of time drinking. I would just want her to not be afraid of experiencing the pain that she could do things like this interview, for example. Like I would have probably gone through like three glasses of wine by this point. It's not so bad to, to feel and remember that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to ask for help and that she doesn't have to do it alone. I think Cheyenne was very lonely and she, she fooled herself into thinking that drinking took away that loneliness. If you think back along your journey, what is the relationship between pride and shame and how have those changed if they have? I think they're very closely related. My pride has driven me to drink, just not being able to except that I was vulnerable and insecure, that I needed to get to be in touch with my emotions, not wanting other people to know that, wanting to appear tough, wanting to fit in. And I think in order to become a sober person, it's all stripped down. But for me, I think when I was drinking, pride always enabled me to continue drinking. And 
I think fear of shame, the fear of people finding out who I really was and being ashamed of who I am. And I can't even articulate who I am. I think we said that at the beginning, but being ashamed of that, not wanting that to be revealed, I think just continued to drive the addiction. And I think now that I am sober, I thought that there would be a lot of shame. I thought I would uncover feelings of not really wanting to be, to identify as an alcoholic. But what happened was the only thing I, I, I really felt real, real shame about was the time that I missed with my children growing up, being there, but not really being there. Very ashamed at that. Mm. I don't know that I will ever get a chance to tell them and talk to them. That is a deep source of both shame and regret for me. And I think my pride now is being an alcoholic in terms of like, I can accept that I am. It's part of my identity now. I'm proud of the fact that I have overcome this addiction. I feel like I have finally overcome this addiction. Being a mother who is an addict or an alcoholic or both comes with its own little hell because of the shame I think so many of us carry of moments we missed or moments we don't remember or just being, as you said, there but not really there. And I do think that it may not be, a, especially it depends, on, I think, on the age of your children, but it may not really be a conversation where you talk about it. With my own son, who just turned seven, I hope it's the games we're playing, you know, the connects roller coasters we're building. When I was f- about four months sober, I carried him to bed from the couch, which, you know, as a parent, you can't even count the amount of times that I've done that. But he has a bunk bed and I carried him up the steps and put him in his bed and I didn't have a single fear that I would drop him. And it dawned on me how long it had been since I had done that and not been like, oh gosh, I need to be like leaning against a wall or have my hand on something else or that I could just carry him to bed and put him in and come back to the couch and just be sober. So I think the amends that we make to our children are often the living amends. They're the daily things that we do when we show up, when you keep making dinner and move through that feeling, or when you decide, yeah, you know what, this is too much. And you go to bed and you order takeout instead, or you come up with another solution that's showing up too. Yeah. I appreciate that. It is. For me, I think when my kids ask me why they have to do something and I actually explain to them why, or I try to come up with a reason as to why without exploding in anger, which is Mm -hmm. what I would do then. And it's just being able to pause and think about the words that I'm saying about how my kids might might receive them and really engaging in a conversation with them that I couldn't have, frankly. There's a lot of lost time with my older children who are teens now. I think there is some bitterness from them, but you know, at some point I will hopefully be able to sit down and have, just have an honest talk and be accountable for my behavior and acknowledge what it might have deprived them of as kids when they were younger, you know, that they don't even, they don't realize it at this point. They don't know, but they, they don't know what it is, but 
they have been affected by it. And I know that a lot of problems in our, in our relationship right now, I know that they come from a source of our relationship having been built on conflict and driven by my impulsiveness. And that's, you know, kind of who I was and I shaped that relationship. And so it's my responsibility to accept responsibility for it and just roll with, with the punches as they grow. Hopefully they'll grow out of it. Hopefully at some point they'll realize I've changed. And at some point I will be able to tell them what happened and why it's different and ask for their forgiveness. But I, I'm certainly not there yet. Yeah. What is one question you wish someone would ask you about yourself or your sobriety? The one question I, 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 I have for other alcoholics that I wish was explored more, the experience of addiction programs, is whether if I could drink responsibly, would I go back to, would I go back to that place? Would I drink again, knowing everything that I know now about drinking and what, how it changed everything? You mean at the beginning? Or if you could drink, if you found out that you could magically drink responsibly, would you do it? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I have that, we'll have that question of you. What would you do? Oh man, that's a, that's a tough question. It's interesting. You had mentioned not being a one day at a time person, you know, and I think there's, Certainly in like the recovery memoir world, there's people who think about sobriety from a one day at a time perspective, because that's what works for them. And then there's, there's people who they take kind of like an Alan Carr, another author about quitting alcohol. Very, I made a decision. I accepted it. I'm never questioning it. That's it. That's what I need to do to stay sober. I am more of a one day at a time person that kind of works for me, I guess, because forever just seems so intimidating. But so I, it's hard for me to answer that because I think about it as, as today. And today, if I could drink responsibly and you told me magically that I could drink responsibly today, I wouldn't. It's, first of all, I feel so disconnected from responsible drinking. (laughs) I can't unsee what I've seen in sobriety And hard as it is, I think I'd find my way back to addiction. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not interested in finding my way back to addiction. So for me, no. What about you? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think we kind of have the same answer. But for me, so my gut reaction is, oh, yeah, of course. I'd love to be able to just go out to have some drinks with friends or to have a glass of wine at dinner. But I cannot conceive of myself actually drinking responsibly. I know that there were times that existed when I could, but I don't remember, I don't remember how I held back and I can't imagine myself now with just a glass of wine or not constantly thinking about, okay, I'm just going to have this one drink. Like I can't, I can't imagine not obsessing over it, like watching how much other people drink. Me too. And I was never interested in one drink. Like that's not what drinking was about for me. Exactly. Like if you had one drink, it was because... Something wrong happened. 
Yeah. <laughs> like you My, were breastfeeding or whatever. Right. So hard as it is, and it is hard. Sobriety is where I think I'd stay. I know I'd stay. Yeah, no, I I can't believe I'm saying that. But yeah, <laughs> I totally, I, I totally agree. Cheyenne, thank you so much for being so open and sharing so much of your story as a black woman and your journey to acceptance. Thank you for having me, Kim. I really appreciate coming on. As always, I want to interview you. Drop a line at SobrietyCore on Instagram or visit www.sobrietycore.com to tell your story. That's www.sobrietycorps.com. Look for our next episode in about a week where we get to hear from a human behind an Instagram handle. Until then, be well.